You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams of A Blog to Watch with another Superlative podcast. I'm joined by a special guest and friend. He is the co-founder of the Shanghai Watch King, uh, Mr. Daniel Sum. Hey, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me again. So I was just musing with you on the fact that the last time we spoke was a podcast that I did as a guest um, for your podcast, Waitlist, and that the total time was three and a half hours. And I had, in my years of podcasting, never done a three and a half hour podcast. And we did it. There was four of us um, in a relatively pain-free way, actually, because three and a half hours, you know, it's a long time. We took a little break. But are all of your podcasts normally three and a half hours? And I want to warn everyone that, unfortunately, this podcast is not going to be more than an hour. If you want more, then you'll have to listen to it three times. Well, we, we split it up. So it's normally like probably after editing, just we try to aim for hour 15. So the episode we did with you will be split into two. So they'll be released in two parts. You're making it slightly less dramatic. Come on, let's make it, let's make it more <laughs> sensationalized. You were very good. You were very good. But actually, I was just thinking about it the other day. Well, actually, after we finished, the last time you did the pot, uh, we did an interview and it went onto YouTube, right? Yeah. You see, at that time, I hadn't met uh, one of the co-hosts on the platform called Long Long. Mm-hmm. But that's where she first heard me, of me. Oh, Yeah. okay, cool. And then subsequently became friends and then, you know, yeah, so very good friends. What people need to know about the Shanghai Watch Gang is that it's not obviously just Shanghai, but it represents like a lot of different regions of Asia, not all of Asia, of course, but a lot of different regions. And the members are you know, people of Asian background, but oftentimes studied in other parts of the world. So very sort of cross-cultural, uh, equally Western and, and Eastern in terms of perspective, all watch lovers. I think it's one of the most interesting watch groups out there. There are a few around the world. Um, we're going to talk about your visit to Watches and Wonders Shanghai. But before that, tell a little bit about, you know, who some of the people behind the Shanghai Watch Gang are, what some of the things you do. Um, you invited me out to your first show, your first event that was very successful in Shanghai that was a lot of fun, a great experience. I just want you to, you to help explain to the listeners, you know, just a little bit about who your outfit is and, and uh, what, kind of, what kind of watches you like, just whatever you can say in about two or three minutes. Okay, it's um, a bunch of watch collectors that have very mixed uh, backgrounds. So there are local Chinese collectors. But um, when we uh, kind of established it, um, we didn't realize that it would actually become a um, platform for global Chinese collectors to identify with. So suddenly, I feel that it was a movement that empowered um, Chinese collectors to become more proactive in the watch community um on instagram um whether you know also meeting them offline so a lot of the collectors uh tend to be dotted around the world because chinese are everywhere um so it isn't just um just those with western kind of culture um but also there's a bunch which are like local chinese but we all mix together um and basically geek out over watches 
And it won't be, I mean, obviously you have super amazing pieces, super amazing collectors that have everything possible, you know, vintage Patek, RM, all those baller pieces. But also, you know, you've got people that are collecting um, very, very vintage just watches like Elgin's, uh, JLC's, um, the Doxes, Movados. And that's what we try and encourage. We try and try and be as humble as possible and respectful of other people's taste in watches. And it's really a learning platform. So what you'll find is that there are specific collectors that are um, very specialist in one area. And as a watch collector, um, sometimes it's very hard to gain access to certain information and certainly reliable information because a lot of information is uh, brand-led and therefore marketing-led. But you want to hear the honest truth, and it's always good to hear it from a collector. So it's become an avenue for this kind of uh, information as well. And it was founded um, by me, Calvin, and uh, Austin. So Austin is quite a famous Instagrammer, Aka Horaloop. Yeah, so it's it's um, some of the most important collectors. But you know what I think is great about the Shanghai Watch Gang, especially because there's you know so much money and purchasability there. You can go into this club. Somebody owns pretty much everything, yet no one's going to make you feel bad for what you have. And there's a sort of approachability, but also a a robustness to the to the group that I think is unparalleled around the world. And I want to congratulate you and the co-founders for putting Slung Lab together. I also want to say that I think it's very interesting how in the West, there's this perception that China has a specific taste. Uh, people who are Chinese buy these particular watches and not these. And this is a pervasive conversation amongst brands and retailers and even a lot of collectors in America. But when you engage with the Shanghai Watch Kings members, you realize that it may be the fact that sort of a mainstream uh, Chinese collector may be in- interested in something else. But the tastes that are represented are unbelievably international. Like There's nobody from any place who's a watch collector that would meet any of you and after three or four minutes you know, not hear about a lot of watches that they themselves enjoy. I don't know how you guys do it, but it's amazing how well represented like every single kind of taste and interest um, is. So congrats to that. Um, why, don't you you. Te- why don't you tell everyone some of the, <laughs> the, up, the, the sort of context in, in sort of the Chinese side, because it's the pandemic and it's a crazy mm-hmm. world, but going up to Watches and Wonders Shanghai, which was basically the only major watch show, I mean, I'll explain a little bit of it, but just from your perspective, the only major watch show uh, that happened in 2020, it got to happen in your city, lucky enough. Um, so give a little context to sort of like what surrounded the show, why it was so important that, that it even happened. Everything has been kind of down on the event side, I think, not just uh, China, but globally, right? Oh, yeah. So to aggregate so many people in one place... I think is a, a big challenge right at the moment for any country. But I think it's uh, very key that at this moment, geopolitically as well, China also gives the image that they are open for business. Um, they are recovering and they're recovering very fast uh, compared to other countries. And I feel that um, when other countries are down, I think it's a great opportunity for China to basically show their prowess and their consumer power. And I think Watches and Wonders is a, a good platform to do that. Um, I think kind of a watch exhibition or a watch trade show, a watch show 
of uh, international standing is very much needed within the Chinese market. Um, it's simply that, you know, a lot of the, we all know that Chinese represent um, the biggest watch buying category, um, but it's so far away from Switzerland. And I think a lot of watch collectors, as they're maturing along their watch journey of purchasing and collecting, they're asking for more. They want more. And they want more of the experience now. They want more experience, uh, not just collecting the, the pieces that everybody thinks that they would like, you know, the, the sought after pieces, uh, the hard to get pieces, but actually how to develop as a collector into certain niches such as vintage or um, just finding their own taste, independence, for example. Um, and right now, there isn't, isn't really access to that. So I think it's very important on those, those fronts, so geopolitically and also, I think, domestically, the consumer needs it. Well, I think it's also safe to say that the individual watchmakers themselves and brands, for the most part, have spent so much of their travel bandwidth traveling to China over the last decade or so there's just so many different cities to go. And of course, it's, it's exhausting to, to constantly travel all the time. But the importance in your market of having the people from Switzerland, especially come and visit and get to know everyone has been so important. It's caused them all to travel constantly. So of course, there's never enough and the collectors are hungry for more. But it's amazing how the Swiss, you know, sort of stable stay at home character has fundamentally shifted and gone into travel mode for so long specifically to do that, you know, some of them should just probably set up shop locally, but, you know, then it would be, it'd be strange because they're all Swiss brands. I think what's important to say about watches and wonders is that while it was the only major watch of 2020, I guess there's a little bit left, you know, more could happen, but the only major one that happened and it happened, you know, in China, but this is a Swiss organized event. Watches and Wonders is organized by the, uh, the FHH, who's the foundation of, of uh, Hotorology. Um, in Geneva, it's funded by Richemont and some other major watch brands. And it normally put on a show called SIHH, whose name died in 2020, along with a lot of other watch shows. And it will be resurrected as Watches and Wonders Geneva. And rather than have a show in Geneva for 2020, couldn't do it for a lot of you know, pandemic uh, restrictions, China was a much more willing host for the reasons you said, Daniel, of course, uh, wanting to show uh, prowess of consumer and that they're ready for business again. But it showed the yeah. world, you know, just how important that is. How did, how did that make you feel as a consumer that, that it was in your own backyard? Well, we've done the Shanghai Watch Festival the last two years, and I've always known the importance of the Chinese market. But as I was doing these kind of events with brands, I realized that they really don't know what they're doing. Like, <laughs> they really don't have Give some examples. Network. Give some examples. Like, um, you want to come into China you should at least know what WeChat is, right? So if we're talking business and you're telling me to use WhatsApp, you know, these uh, Western American platforms that are all banned in China, <laughs> yeah? Like, it's, there's a problem that you don't understand that, let's say, okay, how, let's put it this way for, for, for your listeners that might not appreciate, I want to make an analogy is, would you not know what Facebook is? Right? How would how could you be serious about going to America and not knowing what Facebook is? Right? And that's what I feel like. How can you be serious about coming into China when you don't know what WeChat? Well, well, well so, so hold. That's an interesting point, and I think WeChat's different. But you can live your full life in America, not know what Facebook is or interact with it. The only time you'd ever hear about Facebook is from your friends who are on Facebook. 
So I think it's it's interesting to hear you say that, but for us, Facebook isn't isn't that important. We don't use it for payments. We don't use it for scheduling. We don't really use it to meet new people. It's like a side conversation, but it doesn't function the same way that something like WeChat does. I think that's really important to point out. I think, okay, if we put it that way, then I think WeChat is even more important because you've highlighted some of the the usages of WeChat. It isn't just a messaging platform. Um, it's basically right now, um, yeah, you can buy literally anything on that platform. It's like your bank and your shopping mall and a lot of other things. Like Westerners, we have apps and, and services we use, but they, they tend to do a very narrow number of things. Um, it's not... Most consumers can't really wrap their mind around like even the amount of stuff that Amazon offers. Like Amazon does mm. so many things, but consumers are like, uh, I can buy stuff and watch watch movies. That, that's it. That's like as far as their mind can go, right? Mm. Even though mm. Amazon does so much more. So, you know, it, it's one of the things like, you know, I grew up being into a lot of, you know, Japanese um, toys and a lot of goods and, and some Japanese companies that do everything. And like, I couldn't understand, like, how does Mitsubishi make microwaves and cars? Like, that doesn't make any sense. They're so different. Um you know, and that's that's sort of a weird thing. So I just don't well, think the, yeah. the consumer gets it. It isn't like there's ads for Facebook. There's not billboards saying like use it for this. Like Facebook just sort of expects you to f- figure it out. And um, I don't know that if you came to America, there'd be any easy place for you to learn about Facebook. Well, I, I'm from the West, so I'm from England anyway. So I was back in university when Facebook kind of uh, launched. Um, what's really interesting, though, is that it, China is one of those places where it has literally has no American influence over its infrastructure, especially social media footprint. Yeah, nothing. And yet it, and it, and yet it has a very mature and successful model. Yes. And what I find interesting is, I mean, last time we had a friend on the podcast called Alex. He he spoke to me and I said to him about China and that there's um, many platforms actually that are similar to YouTube. And in, in, the, in the West, you just have YouTube. Um, and he couldn't get his head around that. He said, but why? That's so inconvenient. I just want one place where I can watch my videos. And I was like, but Alex, you sell insurance. Are you the only company that sells insurance? <laughs> You're not, right? So, so why is that so hard to get your, your head around? I, I will admit... Uh, American tech companies have a huge problem with monopolies. We definitely need a lot more um, options and lower barriers to entrance and things like that. So I, I totally agree with you. Now, I guess because we're talking about social media so much, I think the important part is a lot of you became watch lovers through social media, which is, of course, mm-hmm. true with a lot of modern um, yeah. you know, people in America as well. But I didn't become a watch lover through social media. It's been a tool. Yeah. You know, do you think that you become a different type of watch collector growing up with watches and social media versus family or business or things like that? Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> you know, there's that stereotype about uh, Orientals or Chinese um, being awesome video gamers, right? <laughs> <laughs> or very good at computer games and you know, very good at piano and stuff like that. I think from a very early age, we were introduced to um, digital things and gadgets and things. And we have this innate in our culture, this very high interest in this kind of thing. And so we grew up with this and we made friends like this. Um, you know, we, I was a Chinese and there wasn't many Chinese people around me. And the internet and these social media platforms was the only real way for me to connect with people that had a similar background to me. There was no way I could connect with many other way. 
So we became accustomed to to use them and also um, use them in a way where we could actually build trust with each other. So I think maybe that's a bit different to other cultures, maybe. So learning about watches was inherently social, whereas someone like me, I learned about watches essentially in a vacuum. You know, it was several years of me being a watch lover before I ever met another fellow watch lover. You met fellow watch lovers from day one, and that I think that makes a really big difference. Well, I had a I had a very strong urge to meet other people that um, kind of had the same passion as me. And then what became very apparent, especially in China, was that um, people, the consumer here is so heavily marketed. I'm not just talking about watches. Everything. Uh, everybody wants the attention of the Chinese consumer. And so they're very, very mature on ad- advertising and soft PR marketing. They don't want to hear it from a brand. They want to hear it from a person that actually bought the watch because they, they, they feel that's the most honest answer they'll get on the product, which is why WeChat is so successful because the friend network you have on there is very, very strong. So they'll ask their friends on their opinion of this while on the, in the West, maybe you go straight to Google and type it in. But no, well, you'll actually ask a friend. Tell me, answer this. Um, and again, I'm trying to make a comparison between China and in Europe, which is when it comes to communication, things very, very different. Europe, for example, there's a lot, there's punishments for, you know, sort of false advertising. I think, and I'm asking in China, um, can, can advertisers get away with a lot more? Meaning can they, yeah. can they be highly deceptive without, you know, anyone really taking yes. down their ad? Yes. Okay. Yes. That, so that was loads, my presumption. In Europe, you loads. can't do that. So the consumer is more savvy in China because they yes. have to be. Yes. And the Europeans yes. don't get this. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. Yeah, you just said it. Yeah. And there's so many social media platforms as well that in terms of how content is uh, displayed, you're hit by so many different types and styles. That also, I think you're quite savvy after a while. You have to be, because if you just trust the marketing, you could waste all your money or die. <laughs> like, you know, you could do unhealthy things like eat fast food all day long and think it's great for you. In America, you know, we're the first country in the world where we had to become savvy consumers because the marketing would send us to an early grave if we just listened to it. Well, yeah, I think this brings us back full circle to the topic of this podcast, which is having offline. You know, having offline where people can actually engage with reality, the brand, the products, everything is still very much needed. I think most of us are now seeing a lot of watches online, which I don't know if on the launch pictures they are actually the photos or actually the computer-generated photos, but we all know the watches don't look like that in real life if you touch them. And certainly you can't really get the energy that the watch has from just a photo. And you can't necessarily get the immediate opinion from your friends. So... When you do anything, when you're messaging, obviously, let's say I message you, you don't have to reply straight away. You can formulate your answer and then you can write it and I read your answer. If I don't see your facial expression, I don't really, really understand how you actually feel about the piece. Right. And I certainly don't get the same enjoyment of just going there by myself. So, yeah. I think it's just interesting to have this discussion because it explains how not all, but many of today's serious watch collectors in China, how they grow up. And this is a very obscure, foggy notion to a lot of the marketers in Switzerland, who I've said many times, you don't really understand the mentality in America. You really don't understand the mentality in China because, you know, 
in Switzerland, for example, let's just talk about population, tiny population, low density. They just assume that when you live in a high population environment, you know everyone and you know everything in order to get anything. They don't understand that actually the higher the population, sometimes the more lonely it can be. And it can be more difficult to find people with similar interests. And they just, they don't, they just, they, when you talk to them about marketing, which is crucial to tell people about luxury watches, you, you got to do it. Um, they just sort of fall flat on their face. And, and then people like you, like the Shanghai Watching or me in the blog too much, we're the ones that, that does their marketing for them. Meaning we basically get people in the watches. We convey information about new watches to them. We get them hands-on experiences and we're, routinely not credited appropriately for the service that we do. And, you know, they, they, they spend a lot of their money, time and resource and effort elsewhere. So we come into this, you know, I'm into this more years than you, but both of us has reached the same conclusion of like, you put on the brakes at some moment in your business and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The people that I really help, which is these companies that spell these, you know, very expensive, elaborate, wonderful timepieces, we're helping them earn whatever profit they are. Of course, they always want to make more money, but they're kind of treating us like best case scenario, other consumers, worst case scenario, like like groupies or something like that. It's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. You wouldn't very well be where you are today if it wasn't for enthusiast communities because that's really who's keeping these watch brands alive. You know, we're talking about the, the Jay-Zs of the world and the politicians of the world wearing these products they wear them only after they see some nerd like you and me saying, this watch is true. good, this watch is cool. Yeah, they might true. not know it themselves, but you and I have had to have said that at some point for the Jay-Z to be like, okay, this looks like it's legit. Yeah, because again, they're coming from an area, I'm, I'm not sure if Jay-Z is a huge, like, knowledgeable watch collector, I don't want to presume, but... I'm not sure myself. Um, <laughs> you know, these people also need validation that if they are, they're, they're buying the right watch in their eyes. Yeah. You know? If his job is to look cool, he can't not look cool, right? Yeah, exactly. If he wears something that's not cool, he's not cool. Um, okay, so <laughs> again, we could, I, get, I just get, get fascinated by these sort of cultural differences because even though we seem to get along on so many things, you know, when it comes to the watches we like, we arrived at the conclusions we did in very different ways. Well, I think they you know, talk about watch brands, how they see people like us. They see us as either like collectors that are absolute pain in the ass to deal with because you know too much. Well, we right? are. We are. And you're tight on the money because you know the prices really well. You know what you should be paying. You know how to look at a watch. Yeah. You know how to critique a watch. Or they're just interested in selling you watches, right? And they think, oh, you know, I can't sell you a watch, move on, right? So they don't really see the actual benefit of what you just said in the grand scheme of things because all the brand cares about is selling watches and their brand's watches. They don't really think about how do I actually get more people into watches as an industry? How do we come together as an industry to actually get more people into watches? And actually, instead of just fighting over this small pie, let's try and make the pie bigger. They don't think like that. Let me give you a story. Okay, so the very first watch brand I ever visited their manufacturer was Along and Zona. And this was back in, I want to say like 2009 or something like that. And at the time, I was doing a blog to watch. There's also freelance writing. And one of the big places I freelanced for was Luxist, which was this big luxury blog owned by AOL. It's very, very big. And there's nothing even like it today anymore. So I go on this trip. I'm super excited. And the brand is, you know, really excited about all the people we're going to get out to. But one of the biggest things they tried to do the entire trip was get me to buy a watch. And I'm like, okay, listen, folks. All right. I'm like 27 years old at this point, And their cheapest watch is about $40,000. 
rather than the fact that I'm going to reach a bunch of people out there and show them your your message and I'm taking all these pictures and I've you know we've got these big audience we're reaching, you still are interested in that one potential sale that you'd have to discount to me anyways. Like that's where their mind was at. And like I remember just at the time just giggling about it. It's like, oh my God, are they actually doing this? Like it was hilarious. Like there's no way that I can afford forty thousand dollars on a watch right now. You know, like I'm I, I like I just started this. I'm like I'm struggling and you know it's not like I'm I'm poor, but like that's, a, that's an insane expense for almost anyone. It was just amusing to me how, well, how, how of touch they were. That's an inherent problem within the watch industry. I, I don't want to offend anybody, but there's a lot of people that I come across that either don't like watches and working in the watch industry or don't know anything about watch collecting. They don't start off as a watch collector. They just start off from something and just work their way up and kind of fell into it. And all the people that are towards the higher management, especially in the conglomerates, all they care about is getting their KPIs. And... And for the next two years, I'll then move on to the next brand and just rinse and repeat and just do that and do that. And so the you have to really question like how much do they actually know about the brand? Because they probably don't know much as, as much as most of your listeners right now. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. And again, it's a it's a it's a great brand all on its own. I mean, I think it's yeah, I love top, it. it's top brand for brand. you. Yeah. And I and again, it was still to this day, there's things that that manufacturer does I've never seen anywhere else. Like if I had that forty thousand, you want to know what? There's a good chance I'd spend it all on Gonzona. But yeah. you know, again, a lot of the listeners of superlatives are not traditional watch lovers. There's a good chance, or like I've never heard of that, even though it's basically the top luxury brand in, in all of Germany. Okay, yeah. so all on Gonzona, ironically enough, was one of the watch brands that was at Watches and Wonders. Yeah. What did what was your expectations out of the show? You had been you had been to SIHH, correct? No, I haven't. Oh, you've never been, been to SIHH. You've been, been to Basel. Basel. Okay, so you actually yeah. never saw what this is supposed to be. You must have heard about it. Yes. Um, SIHH, I had been to for about 10 years or so. And and again, it's going to be back as Watches and Wonders, so I'll go in a few months. But you didn't know what to expect. Um, you were expecting to see new watches and maybe learn some stuff and see some cool people. What actually happened at Watches and Wonders Shanghai 2020? Okay, so it's a it was a five-day event. So that would mean Sunday, Saturday, Friday, Thursday, and a Wednesday. But it's kind of weird because the first two days I found out were actually media days. So the first day was a full media day. The second day was a media stroke VIP day. And the last three days were open to public days. But you couldn't go into that venue or the exhibition if you weren't invited so you needed to be invited by a brand. So what's the distinction between these three different types of people if they're all treated exactly the same? Um, well, they're not, because if you're a blogger or a media, yeah, you're treated like crap. Oh, but if you're, <laughs> but if you're an invited you customer, you're treated better. You don't buy. And like what you just said, they don't recognize the importance of having your, well, you know, they're interested so in the people the sales that you bring. Show. Well, that's an important distinction, because SIHH, while there was a lot of private selling, it wasn't, it wasn't publicly in any way a sales event. No, it was definitely a sales event because there's sales booths around the venue, right? Okay, so that so that's a big difference. Okay, what's a sales booth exactly? What does that mean? So it's a room. So there was like a they're dotted around the venue, and the brand can rent them out or yeah, just book them out, and then that yeah, a client can go into that booth or that room. So people had to you know basically fantasize about this type of fun, maybe in Geneva, but in, in Shanghai, it could happen right there. You know what I mean? It goes completely full circle. 
Yeah, you mean having the sales booth and having it basically straight to consumer sales? I mean, I'm jokingly make it sexual, but yeah, again, they're they're closing the deal because again, it, the show is about the flirtation, right? Yep. You're gonna want to buy this. You're gonna get excited about this. You're thinking about buying yep. it, and you know, you you wait for it to hit the retailers. Sometimes like a year later, but now it's just like screw the wait. We're gonna speed date our way into bed. And we're going to do the transaction. If it was good, we'll do it again sometime. But like, you can get it all done today. Yes, yes, that was the aim. I'm not sure how effective it was. Because first of all, if you're, if you're invited by a brand, that means you're already in the brand's database, right? So before novelties are even reached China, all the sales are already WeChatting their own database and client lists, showing them the pieces and saying, are you interested? No patience at all. Yeah, no patience. So you're like, okay, so why do I need to go to Watches and Wonders then? Right? I mean, yeah, okay, I get to see novelties, maybe in, 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 in the flesh. But as brands also are very concerned, let's say, let's say you spoke about Alan and Zerner. You know, they, they, they have their own private uh, database of collectors. You have uh, Roger Dubuis, IWC. Again, Panerai, they all have their list of database. Do they really want their database going to another brand? Do they really want no. that to happen? If they invite no. them down to, to Watchers and Wonders, probably not. So there were a few brands that actually did side events off the Watchers and Wonders that so their <laughs> clients would never even go there, wouldn't even reach Watchers and Wonders. Okay, but like, hold on, hold on. Because again, everything you're saying probably happened, but at some point, doesn't things like having a side event or not wanting the brand under the same corporate umbrella to get the same customers. You Doesn't that sort of pervert the actual reason for having an event? Like there seems to be so many conflicts of interest at the very first version of Watches and Wonders Shanghai, brands are always trying to bypass the, the sort of the core tenants of it. Like, isn't that kind of weird? It's very weird for me. Like uh, maybe it's even accented by the fact of COVID and we know that the watch industry is really suffering. And so the sales and the KPIs themselves is really, really aggressive. Um, but first of all, there weren't always novelties to be seen at Watches and Wonders. So you think, well, why, why don't I just go to the boutique then? Right, well, what was right. the point? Yeah. But then you also have um, a seminar room and a watchmaking room. So again, a brand could hire those out and they could bring their VIPs down to, I don't know, mess around with a movement, take a movement apart. Oh, so more than the small, like like a like an orgy of watch love is what you're saying? Yeah, but they didn't exist uh -huh. because as far as I saw, you know, the room wasn't used. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. I mean, I did go into it and I messed around with them because I know the people that actually run it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have some fun here. But I, mean, um, I was there for two days. And, okay, uh, so you went yeah. for, did you see all the watches? That's, I think, important. No, there because, over two days. Because, no. um, why not? Well, I don't want to say which brand, but I was really excited. It's not that hard to work out, but I was really excited to see that some novelties from a brand, but they weren't there because they were on the side events to show the VIPs. They so, just didn't show up at all? No, I didn't see them on the day. They weren't allocated to be that day. They were only shown on the first and last day of the exhibition. So if you went in the second or third or fourth day, you would never actually see those pieces. So that's what happened. I actually went on the second day and the fourth day. So those novelties weren't there.
That seems like anyone could very easily miss that brand entirely. So it's sort of designed to be slightly, I don't know, it's just, it's, I, SIHH isn't like that. It, you know, every brand was there every day. Well, I think that if you maybe let the local teams aside, they wouldn't want to have the event at Watches and Wonders. I'm thankful that there's someone powerful enough as Richemont or FHH to say, no, you're going to do it. We need to do this for the long-term vision of actually promoting the watch industry within China. As a and that's a good thing. Then, it was that's a good, a good thing. thing. Like you yeah. had the seminar, I could see the seeds that they were thinking. You had a live streaming station, uh, which really promotes social media. Um, so all the things that I think are key were there. I think it needed a bit more softness to it. It was too hardcore on the selling and not enough exhibition-like. Because, yeah, it's just, it's just booth after booth of watch brand. I think there's about 13 watch brands. And, yeah, you see a lot of watches. It's like, but if you go to Nanjing Xilu, which is the main watch street in Shanghai, they're all there as well. Okay, so there wasn't that much exclusive is what you're saying. Also, because of the virus, there just wasn't a lot of people. So, oh, so it wasn't that crowded. Yeah, it wasn't that crowded. So I remember one day I was there and uh, the, the organizer that was running the event told me there are 400 staff servicing 75 people right now at this time, and you're one of those 75. That's great service. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is, I guess. I mean, I spent most of the time at the bar. When you have three people waiting at you at any given time, it's fantastic. Well, yeah, as with any watch brand, you do have to feign interest that you're actually interested in buying the piece. Oh, so, okay. so look, at SIHH, that's a good thing about nothing being sold because you don't have to pretend like you want to buy. All we need to do is pretend like we were going to write about it. And we did half the time. Like we just we made the decision right there and then. When we see watches, the blog to watch team will be like, no, we don't like that. We're not going to take pictures. But like, I don't know, maybe one in 10 times when there's not a good watch, we'll feign interest and be like, okay, guys, just take pictures to be nice. Like that doesn't happen. Well, uh, talking about pictures, I mean, if I had known about the media days, then I probably would have taken more pictures on those days because when it came to open public day or so-called public day, yeah, no one interested in you taking pictures anymore. Okay, so... Again, this is interesting because you went essentially as a blend of a consumer and media. You know, a blog to watch goes to these events as media because usually the events we go to, consumers aren't even allowed in, to begin with. Yeah. So it's actually new that consumers are being invited. But it is true that for a number of years, a small number of VIP collectors who the brands knew would be allowed to go there because um, they, of course, enjoyed it. Yeah. So the experience for blog to watch was very much as a media gathering mm. trip. Whereas for Daniel, it was actually very challenging to get media at all. You were sort of relegated as a member of a, of a buying class. There didn't seem to be much of a media class there, even though there's days for that. But apparently it was... Did, did, you know, did you talk to anyone that went on the media day? Was it? Yeah, yeah I was there on like? the second day, which was media day. And I know a lot of the media that actually went there. So let's say okay. you're Ariel Adams and you bring a block to watch down. I think what we're seeing now is that they're expecting to bring your database down. So I'm advertising to you, how many of your database can actually buy watches? We want you to bring those people down and do a like tour. Like bring our, bring our fans, bring people that could buy yeah, watches. Yeah, bring people to, to bring the, yeah, that can buy watches and really test, is it worth me even advertising with you? And that's what you're seeing right now with a lot of... Uh, which, which is funny because all the studies that we've done have 
come to similar conclusions that when it comes to buying a watch, people take between six to 12 months on average between when they first learn about something they're going to buy and when they actually buy it. So to assume that someone's going to learn about, learn about a new watch and purchase it in the same afternoon, not only is, I think, a little bit unfair, but is contrary to the established norms of watch consumer behavior, meaning if that's your business plan, you're going to fail more often than not. I would say I agree. Uh, that's my experience too. I mean, I'm a watch guy, so I know how long it takes for me to uh, want to buy a watch. Uh. Um, I, I think I would it's say more than three commend, hours. I would, okay, definitely. I would commend one brand that I had a great time with, which was JLC. Uh, okay. It's a brand that I do relatively like. I'm not, I don't own one or anything, but I respect it. Jeger Lacote? Yeah. And they treated the event less like a selling event and more of a educational event for the consumer. So when we think of JLC, we think of Reverso, obviously. There was no right. one single reverso out on display. It was all dedicated to sound. It was all about Memovox, their alarm, oh, cool. the mini repeater. They brought out heritage models. They even had this model which had a two-hour, this old, old JLC, two-hour uh, kind of timer on it so that it would tell you when your parking ticket was up. So it was one of these old vintage ones. And you saw this like P sign on oh, the Oh, how fun. Yeah. So for me, I was like, whoa, that's really cool. Like, that's something I don't see, right? Do you, do, you, do you ever see their camera? No. What camera? So a long time ago, they made a camera, like an actual camera. Right. That's really cool. And then, of course, they have the clock division where they make the Atmos. So, yeah, like they're a legit like, gadget company. Yeah, yeah. The Atmos is such a cool concept as well, right? So that was interesting. And, and the, well, the GM took us around, spent time with us explaining everything. I felt valued. I listened. And I thought, came out with a different impression of that brand. I thought, yeah, maybe. I thought, maybe, you know, maybe I'll buy one. And anything to say about the new JLC watches? Like, did you buy any right there and then? No, I didn't buy. Um, I always think JLC is so priced so competitively. I feel it's such a great buy because what you get um, and what they charge you, another brand could charge you way more for the same thing. Um, it, it's true, I, but don't yeah. see. I'm afraid to say that too much because then I think that like Rishma will be like, "Oh wait, we can make more money here." <laughs> you well, know, like so. I'm afraid that if we say that too much, they'll like close the gap, so to say. I don't think they'll do that because they. I feel that Rishma control their brand, so they try not to overlap each other as much as possible. So I feel like Roger Dubois is there to really target the RM collective. Then Panerai operates this price segment and there's particular people that like big watches, and then. It's all yeah. It's almost like one. So brand what would lots of so what products. would Jager be? I don't understand. Like that's the thing that they, they're not really clear in what their niche is because yeah. they have watches at all these price levels. Yeah, you're, you're you're completely right. So that's why I feel there is a cult of people that appreciate JLC because they provided a lot of movements to to the watch houses in the past, like VC, Cartier, you know, I think Patek. So they always are respected in that in that you know for that. We have um, like a joke campaign at a blog to watch where one of our team members, David Braden, also really loves to share it very, very much. And I always joke that like we should, you know, have a campaign so he could be elected as their new CEO. <laughs> like, like pretend it's a democracy. Be like, you know, vote for David to run JLC. Because, you know, ever since Lambert left um, Jager, and he's of course still at Richemont, I don't know that the brand has had any seeming direction. 
And all their amazing modern watches were basically created under his, um, his tutelage. So mm. I think that, you know, it's, it's a brand that right now is um, a bit on ice because no one's sure what to do with it. Probably because it needs a lot of investment because it can't just crank out reversals, reverses all day long. That's not what guys like you and me and David want. Yeah, I think that pretty much hits the nail on the head. Its identity is not really fully clear on what it's trying to be and what price segment it's trying to be. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so... Actually, saw, actually Ariel, I've got oh, something to ask you. <laughs> yeah, Please. Let's say I'm a brand right there. And how much do they actually care about the end consumer? Because historically, they would have worked with a distributor... And let's say I'm a GM, 80% of my KPI or what I need to sell is going straight to the distributor and then retailers. I'm done. I've done my sales, right? But as brands now think, oh, do you know what? I want more money because I can sell direct to the consumer. I'm now going to this um, metamorphosis of how do I communicate to the consumer? But hang on, I still have to think about my distributors because they always take 80% of my stock. I can't annoy them too much. So are they always on a kind of thin rope of, oh, you know, balancing act of <laughs> we need to sell direct eventually because that's where it's going to go. But actually, these guys take a lot of stock. And, and by the way, I'm only in this job for two years, two, three years. I need to do a good performance so I can jump to the next level. Well, I think you've described a lot of accurate things that happen on a regular basis, which cause a number of conflicts of interest or confusing outcomes. And that's really the problem with the watch industry right now is you have a lot of comp competing incentives. You know, you have some elegant industries where you have a bunch of different actors in the industry and all their incentives kind of elegantly align in ways where kind of everyone's happy. The watch industry has a very inelegant aligning of economic and social incentives. And so what the brand itself wants is different than what the corporate parent wants, is different than what the CEO wants, is different than what the employees want, is different than the distributor wants, is different than the salesperson wants, is different than the watch, you know, a consumer wants, is different than the watch media person wants. And that's what you have. And maybe it's not so extreme as that, but all these different types of people, plus watchmakers and designers and all that themselves, are amongst the necessary elements of this industry. And Right now, there's a situation where a lot of their interests are not aligned, and you're, and you're seeing that firsthand. And it's, it's an unfortunate thing. Ever since I started going to watch um, industry events, you know, more than a decade ago now, I noticed something that you and I would consider strange. Like, this didn't make sense. They seem to be spending a lot of money here and not enough here, and these very strange decisions they're making. It's always sort of been there, but the world has sold enough watches to continue to fund essentially dysfunctional organizations, right? Like a lot of industries and companies continue to operate despite, despite massive dysfunctions because there's just an overwhelming amount of money flowing. It's just enough money to go around that everyone just puts up with it. When the money doesn't flow as much, the whole system starts to break down. People start getting angry at one another. Old feuds arise. You know, new feuds become, you know, big deals. And, and so we're starting to see that right now in the watch industry because the money hasn't been flowing the way it used to. It will flow again, but in different ways. And, you know, there's cities that used to be like on the coast that are now like inland and they don't know what to do about it. And so a lot of entities are unhappy about it. So what's going to happen? Well, you know, things will settle in again at some point. Um, the love of watches is still out there. New people are coming into being watch lovers, which is great. And a lot of the products continue to be fantastic. Like 
the, the watch industry still knows how to make a great watch when they want to. But what a salesman will be like, what a CEO will be like, how they will work with one another, how the consumer will interact, how they're going to sell. This is all like a bunch of like, you know, food thrown up in the air and it, 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 no one's really quite sure like how will it hit the ground. What's, you know, splatter when it hits the ground? Will it be fine? Um, that's sort of what we're in right now. It's, it's a great a great moment of shift and, um, you know, it's cataclysmic, but so are so many other parts of the world that no one's really paying attention to the watch industry. But sorry, that's a very long answer. No, it's great because that basically gives a great opportunity to the watch industry to be more efficient, actually question what they were doing before. I hope so. Something that I wanted, if, if there are any watch industry people listening to this, I'm a consumer. So if I can feel this and see through it, then you have a problem. <laughs> Look, I came into the industry basically making a lot of those statements to them, you know, a, a decade or so before you've been saying it. And there are people that get it. There are people that pay attention. But what I was told many... I really feel for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, this is what I was told many, many times. And again, you and I both grew up in places that are dynamic and that embrace change and, and are open-minded to, to new things. Asia and America are as successful as they are because of this open-mindedness to new things, whereas Europe is just is conservative. And being conservative allows them to do things like make traditional mechanical spring-powered watches because no one else would do it. But when it comes to their thinking, they're just they're stuck in the past. And so you're right. I was right before you. And you know, they intellectually get it, but they are told from a young age, you grow up into a society that existed before you. You are too small of a thing. You are just part of a larger whole. Your job is to preserve the traditions because they worked really well. Like it takes a majority of people, not just one person, to decide on change. Whereas, you know, in America, at least, we're told from a very young age, change starts with one person being really passionate about something and telling the world how they feel. And that's considered very, very rude in most of Europe. Yeah, it's similar to China. Like, because it's, it's the age-old problem with a big country mentality and a small country island mentality or a small country mentality. And that's probably that issue. I probably pissed off a lot of people there. Look, I was, there was a guy, um, I remember him. He was actually, he was, he was a, a guy of Chinese descent. Um, he had a French name. Um, he ended up doing some things that were illegal. So his reputation, I believe, was put down a few years later. But he, um, this was very early on in my career in doing this. And he sat me down and he said in a very tough way, like a tough, like, you know, it's like a tiger dad kind of way. But I was someone who was used to tough love and I took it for what it was worth. And he basically said, Ariel, you're coming across these people as totally cocky, totally arrogant. They're like, who the hell are you? Why are you telling us what to do? You're going to piss off more people than you intend to by having this approach you need to chill out a little bit and learn how to talk to them. Otherwise, you're never going to get anywhere. It doesn't matter how much you think you're right. And, you know, I hadn't been talked to that way. He was a lot more like, I made it sound much more polite than he, he said it. But I remember being very thankful and being like, you know what? That guy really knew what to say to me. Like, I needed to hear that. Like, no one else had told that to me. I'm so glad he took me aside because he did mean well. He really did. And I've had enough people say that to me, but I've had more talks like that over the years about how you ain't going to change the mind of the Swiss, then you're doing great. Keep up the work. They're, they're starting to shift. And I've made 
a lot of shifts in the industry. I've single-handedly, you know, been responsible for some major shifts in attitudes and decisions and things like that. I, I know that because I'm told this. So um, in a sense, me being a dick was good, but the resistance to it is uncanny. Whereas in other parts of the world, you'd think that there'd be more support. That's the problem. There's no support for new ideas. Mm-hmm. Like there's more support if you elegantly explain why an old idea is still awesome versus, hey, everyone, let's try something new. Like, hey, everyone, let's try something new is what nobody in Europe wants to hear. But let me remind you why this old thing you used to do is still amazing and still the best. Nothing makes a European person more happy than to hear that. Well, I think what we're talking about is the cultural dynamics and differences between, uh, let's say, China and uh, Europe or America and Europe. And this is the kind of barrier, really, that needs to be overcome, I feel, to to really get the most out of the Chinese market. You could, I think it could be a lot more. If, if one person bought a watch in Shanghai, the whole watch industry tomorrow, the whole watch industry would be done for the year. Like done. The funny thing is, the, the, the big deal, the reason that we you went, were going to have this call was Watches and Wonders, and we thought it would make for a great superlative episode. But the funny thing is, you didn't actually see enough novelty in watches to feel that that should be a big part of the conversation, which I think is the shame because you and I are in this for the love of new watches. And this is like a down year and we get it, but we're like, you know, it's just to become politics and people and things like that. Like, there's not even enough new watches right now for us to keep us interested in watch. And there's still some, which is great. But it's like, you know what I mean? Like, we really just want to sit there and be like, did you see that new this? You know, like, yeah. so JLC, you know, like, yeah. what did they come out with? Yeah, I mean, like I said, a lot of the seeds were there. What I would have, I probably better if I say what I would have enjoyed to see or developed more. Sure. Which is, I would have really loved to have seen someone like a Philip Dufour or Jean-Claude Beaver or someone with some standing in the watch industry come and give a talk. I would have, even if they didn't come, I would have loved to have seminars on particular topics where I could listen in and come and go as I please. The next thing, yeah, definitely playing with watches from a mechanical point of view. Uh, yeah, not, yeah, maybe polishing, um, angleage or taking away a movement or trying to make, make something like a hairspring or something like that, that would have been great. Social media, I kind of think you can incorporate it to the main public if you interview people, interview collectors. And then again, you get to sit, on, sit in on that and that content is then spread all the way through China. That would have been great um, for those people that couldn't make that or weren't invited there because of the coronavirus situation. Definitely, I would have liked to see the novelties, but that needs a rethink as well. Because let's say a bunch of people come down, like, am I going to wait there for hours just to see the novelty? How am I going to get to see it and play it when you've only got a set? Maybe there needs to be more, more, more sets. Maybe you need more human resources. <laughs> more samples? <laughs> ah, you're barking up the more samples tree. You and many have tried. <laughs> right, So, so I think... More of that and more heritage, more history. Maybe there'd actually be a proper uh, uh, dedicated section to teach us more about the history of watches, the culture of watches. Um, little bit, bits of like pure gold nuggets, we call them. Like where you could go away and think, oh, I didn't know that. And now I learned something. Um, that kind of thing. And also for, for me, I love meeting with other collectors and just hanging around. And I think seminars or anything that's geared towards a community like that is very powerful. Yeah, because you only see one guy and he's geeking out over you. And it's not, it's not going to take me less, it's going to take me less than five minutes to reach out and just try and make contact. 
with another alien <laughs> like me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this is great feedback. And I think that the organizers would be very wise to listen. I mean, right now, you know, we have, I still want to talk about more of the watches you saw there, but there's, there's a follow-up show to Watches and Wonders Shanghai, which is Watches and Wonders in, in a part of Hainan. Yes, right. Um, yeah. Pure sales event. Tell us a little bit about this and like what is up with it? Who should go to this? Um, it's at a shopping center called, uh, was it Sanya, something like that? Yeah, it's in Sanya, which is more of a touristy place. Um, and I think in, in preparation for Golden Week, uh, a few of the, not all of the watch brands that attended Watches and Wonders went, but some did. And it was just basically, yeah, that I think they moved all of the booth equipment down there and set up shop and again, tried to start watching. It's a month long. That's what nobody, you know, yours was five days long and it was like they still couldn't be there every single day. This is supposed to be an entire month long and the the release promised it would be a similar experience to watch. Is that even, you know, Watchers and Wonders, is that even practical? Um... I don't think so because from I think the <laughs> brands are like stretched so much. They had watching them one this for five days, then they go to Sanya, then they've got the World Expo, the Import Expo, right, which they pretty much have to attend. Then on top of that, they have their own brand events as well, in all in the space of uh, three months. It's tight. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that you know had to probably upend their lives and relocate in multiple parts of China. Like, for like this is, I mean, Richemont must have put in a freaking fortune just to make this all happen. Um, that's how much they believe in, in the market. I've, we've spent like a lot of this po- po- podcast or this interview talking about, oh, you know, the brands that we just care about money. But this, to me, and watch the one that didn't make money, right? I think no. some people made a lot of money. So the company is going to, bill that to FHH, which are probably then going to bill it to Richmond. And guess what? They're probably going to put 20% on at least on the bill. Right. So some people make money, but for the brands, I'm not so sure it was that cost effective. You know, from an exposure point of view, you have a public event, which is actually invite only. So that actually is already con- conflicting. You, if you do an exposure where you, like say JLC, you want to show the story and the branding side, people want to learn more. You're not getting the foot traffic in. Right. And we can put that to coronavirus. Yeah, I totally get that. So maybe next year it would be different. Um, but for the other brands that, okay, want to focus on selling, again, we go back to they just want to sell into their database because that's where they know. Uh, how interested well, and so safe are they interested in trying to invest that time into finding a new consumer? I was with one of the brands and they were so stretched on human resources that clearly some of the staff are from the back office. They don't engage yeah. with the consumer. They don't really know about the product they're selling. I mean, these, these are small companies to begin with. And, you know, we've seen this all along when I go on the shows. I mean, look, I, if you had been going to trade shows for as long as I have, I think that it would have been interesting to hear you discuss how they may have been similar or different. It sounds a lot like most trade shows for the watch industry. Chaotic, understaffed, not enough samples, you know, conflicting meetings and things like that. It seems that despite the pandemic world, they were able to put on a really complete, you know, event. Mm. And, you know, they were able to have enough people there that you had to wait around before you could see stuff. But yeah, it would have been great for it to run a lot more smoothly. Like, you know, like, you know, put Disneyland people on, make sure those lines move. As a whole, it was good, I felt. Like, first of all, I'm happy that they did it. I think Shanghai or China really needed something like this. 
yes, they can work on it. I think we are being slightly nitpicking and harsh because we expect so much and we expected so much. Well, we're nitpicky guys. That's what we yeah. do. That's why people listen to us about watches. Yeah. But like I said, it's very much needed in the Chinese market. So I hope that that discontinues and it gets better. One thing I'll also say is you've just mentioned that you've been to trade shows for many, many years, which have grown from being more of a B2B platform where distributors and retailers go to make that pilgrimage to SIHH in Basel and put down the deposit for the next year or, or for their third quarter what they want. You can't say, oh, I will now want to reach the consumer. Oh, by the way, all you retailers now leave the room and I'm going to keep the same setup and I expect consumers to come. Because your whole setup was geared towards business. It wasn't geared towards the consumer. So you can't just, I'm going to do the same booth and expect the consumer to enjoy it. No, because they weren't there to like a retailer that to put down so much money. They use what they have. They don't want to invest in new. Remember the cultural differences. China and America, it's like every year, let's try something different. The Europeans, they're like, if it worked last year, why won't it work next year? You know, it's the fundamental difference in operation that makes such a big difference in something like a trade show. Mm, yeah, okay, <laughs> if you put it like that. But I think I, it's, again, yeah. it's, it's, it's such, a, they're, they're not sitting around being like, we should do all these stuff, but no. They're just like, well, it sold a lot to retailers. I wonder what it'll do with consumers. Let's find out. Yeah, also, I don't know about these things, how much they cost. I have an idea because I spoke to some brands, but maybe also, and you'll have more insight on this, the cost of actually holding these exhibitions needs to come down from the brand side of view. Because at least with a retailer, you know how Basel works. Well, I, you know, they have appointments on Wednesday, you know, I'm meeting this distributor from Asia and this one from Singapore, right? And I expect probably they're going to put in order of this and this and this. The sales are quite guaranteed. But when you reach the end consumer, just like you said, you need like maybe five to eight months before this guy purchases a watch. It's a very unpredictable timeline. They might not end up buying your watch. They might end up buying something else. In the face of not having so many guaranteed sales, would it make sense to try and lower the cost of participation? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I'm, I'm going to answer the question a different way. I do not fundamentally believe that much of the watch industry as it exists today or will exist can rely on a B2C model, meaning selling direct to consumers. There certainly will be some that can do it well, but it will not be the majority in my opinion. Most of them will have to work through some type of retailer. The role of retailers and how they get to consumers will change. But what you're talking about, that sort of like eight to nine month time between how long it'll take between someone gets a watch and the sale will be made is part of the reason that retailers deserve as big of a margin as they do. There's a lot of dirty work involved in selling a watch to the end consumer. Getting them to like it is one thing. Getting them to buy yours over someone else's, this is where the retailers have done an excellent job over the years in moving product. And brands have been very jealous of the, of the margin they've been able to capture, but have not been able to, in many instances, replicate their, their system, their style, their ability to sell um, in, in large quantities and to get to know people. And so I think that, the, the industry has to ask and answer in a very you know, complete way what it wants its relationship with wholesale to be. It's good for some brands. It's not brand for others. It's not good for others. Many brands right now are mixing everything. You know what I mean? They're like traditional wholesale, 
and we're doing events selling to consumers. We're also doing yeah. online. We're selling yeah. direct online, but yeah. we're letting our authorized dealers also sell online. Yeah. We're also doing wholesale stuff as well at the back door at the end of the year. We don't have enough. We're also making peace uniques directly for these people. Yeah. This country, we're doing it this way. This, I mean, they're doing everything they want. And that's why they're having distribution issues because the internet becomes like the hodgepodge of like backyard bazaars and high street shopping, you know, Google rank number two and number four. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> talking about distributors, like let's say they do sell at the events of watches and wonders. So the brand brand is selling direct and that, and if they can sell volume and that, let's say that model actually works, what happens to the distributor? Is the distributor going to be happy when they're supposed to have the region of, let's say, Shanghai within their you know region of selling? Are they happy? Probably not. So there's so many politics involved. It's a bit of a nightmare, really. This is, this is what I think. This is what I think should happen is one of potential mo uh, models. And I've discussed many. I've written about how to treat retailers in the future. But one of the problems in today's globalized world is the traditional geographic regions, like countries, for example, don't make any more sense, right? Because somebody in Germany could very easily buy from somebody in Hungary if there's a better price and shipping doesn't you know, change anything. Yet the person in Hungary that sells that watch is only technically allowed to sell in Hungary. And the person in Germany, well, you know, they, would, they shouldn't be caught selling out of Germany. And so that, there's this, in this conflict of interest that makes no sense. And so one of the things that has to go away is this distinction between regions. Any retailer can sell anywhere they want. And the trick is that if the global market is high enough for a product, people will sell out. Therefore, every retailer will eventually get to sell their watch because there's, there's high demand and the production is clean enough. And so I think that there should, there should be no regional distinction at all between um, retailers. Retailers should be allowed to specialize in their type of consumer market, no matter where they are in the year, where they are in the, in, in the world, um, anything. They should, you know, retailers should be able to specialize. And that's, wonderful in terms of, of competition because now they're they have arbitrary arbitrary you know regional distinctions so i think that retailers make sense they're going to be the ones that have a lot of the responsibility to create demand and move the product and market um to their specific niches and that's i think just the way it's going to need to be and i think the industry just needs to get rid of those barriers i think they we're only just talking about like distribution and that's only one part of the watch industry i mean literally you're opening i, I totally agree with the global thing because let's say China sells, well, China is up on watch imports, I believe, by 50%. So more watches are selling here. But that doesn't mean more marketing budget for the brands is increasing. No, because all the other markets are down. They have to balance the books. So let's withdraw some of the marketing budget, even though this is the market we really need to focus on. Um, and also, before the coronavirus, a lot of Chinese bought outside China for tax reasons. They might, might have bought in the US, Europe, Australia, Singapore, you know, anywhere. But that is a Chinese consumer, essentially. And they would probably have got that watch due to the marketing in China. So if you don't market in China, you don't make it relevant in that market. You don't make that brand relevant in that market. You never got the KPI in Europe. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, the, the brands just need to say, we want to make 5,000 watches this year and we want to do as much as possible to get retailers to buy those 5,000 so they can then sell it on. We need to be happy with the money we made after we sold it at retail, and we need to forget about the fact that the retailers also make money. That just has to be a nice thing, and you know the brands just need to be okay with it. I'm sorry, you can't do everything. And then the retailers, one of the things that I like about the system that I pointed out is you know, there's taxes and customs involved. 
to buy a watch in America, you know, from another country could be so expensive because of customs and duties that, you know, it just, you wouldn't want to do it. You'd still want to buy within within America. Therefore, certain retailers have certain, you know, natural reasons why buying from them makes sense. And we, you know, Hong Kong is a wonderful example. Hong Kong was for many years the cheapest place in the world to buy a watch. Assuming you went there and you sort of, you know, took it on your own wrist and you left with it, like, people would go out of their way to go to Hong Kong to buy a watch. Mm-hmm. The retailers there, even if they were allowed to sell all over, you know, or they, they knew there was competition, they knew that people were going to buy from them because there's economic advantage to doing so. And it benefited many retailers very well for a long time. So even if you open up the borders in terms of the contracts with the brands, there's still going to be all these practical reasons why some places are just mm-hmm. going to keep buying yeah. because they have these you know, advantages for doing so. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, did you see any other nice watches at Watches and Wonders? I didn't get to go. You need to get me excited about one thing. That is your job for the rest of the conversation. Okay. Get me excited about one watch okay. that you saw at Watches and Wonders, Shanghai. Well, I, I, as you've mentioned, I saw the Langer pieces. So, uh-huh. and you know that I love Langer, right? So, as do I. So, I saw the 1815 um, split seconds, Chrono, and I saw the Tolby Graph. And I saw the enamel dial, white enamel dial. Let's say that nobody knows what you're talking about. Are, <laughs> right. are any of these brand new models? Yes, they're all three. All three are brand new. They're honey gold, like new movements. Um, that I'm not sure about. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, like, I need to be excited by the 1815. Is probably definitely a new movement because it, I think that's the only one which has a split second function. Okay. Uh, on the 1815. And why is this exciting? Well, it's just so beautiful to look at. It had a, it was like honey. Have you, you, you obviously know about Langer's Honey Gold, right? Oh yeah, Honey but, Gold's great. So it's not. It's like a. Well, the reason why it's called Honey Gold because it's not as dark as rose gold, right? And it's it's, it's, it's know, its own. It's its own alloy. It has a it has a color which is is more honey like. So it's not yeah. quite yellow gold. It's not rose. It's honey like. So I love how that metal changes because sometimes it can even look like stainless steel. I love lights. that blend. And it, 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 yeah. I think of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, and it, it, it's on this black dial. So anything I feel that is black is so sharp on the dial. Like that's the benefit of having black dial, so sharp. And then on the black dial, you have rose gold. Everything else is rose gold indices. So you have a honey gold case with a black dial with rose gold indices. I mean, you, that sounds good, right? And the split second chrono function. So I think all we covered is the TurboGraph. So I don't even know what this watch looks like. I'm waiting on I'm waiting on pictures from you, sir. Yeah, I'm waiting for Lang to give me permission. Permission? Yeah, to send you them. Why did you ask them permission? Because I was only allowed to take pictures on very strict uh, kind of restrictions. So I wasn't uh, wasn't allowed to take any pictures of the case back. Actually, so the good part, I can't actually even show you because I wasn't allowed to take a picture. I could only see the, the dial side. The, the watch is a bit of a hefty hulk, to be honest. It's very, very thick, very, very wide. The highlight of that watch is the dial again, which is kind of like this matte gray uh, finish. I wouldn't say hammer tone finish, but it's not that far. Um, and it's done by the release. Is this one of the ones that they hand do it? Yes. I think so, yeah. Yeah, the Hanswerk Kunst? No, it's not Hanswerk Kunst. Oh. It's not that, not that, not that one. 
But yeah, that we're, get, was, we're getting really nerdy. When we start bringing out the Hans Works Kunst, this this conversation is becoming so over the head. I of so love many people. Hans Works Kunst, though, man. I know it's so great, but again, this is why people realize like it's not about necessarily geeking out about like technical things or rarity. With Alang and Zona, it's the beauty. Like Alang and Zona is a very visual experience. It's got a great machine. There's mechanics in there, but at the end of the day, it's a visual love. When you like Alang and Zona, you are a man that likes beauty. Yeah, I love actually the brand itself. What how I've I've, I've met with the CEO and how the brand is that they're low production every year, uh, the quality, as well as the aesthetics that match with it. Aesthetics alone aren't enough to, to attract me. But when you turn over any case back of an Langazona, you're never, ever, like, underwhelmed. You feel like, oh, wow, you know, that, that's where the money is. I, I know you're right, but I, I believe that I would be able to prove to you through argument that it's basically a... Um, that's what get what gets is is the good looks. It ends up being as a function of being well made. Yes. But there's a lot of yes. really well made watches. Yes. that are like, eh, who cares? But the enamel dial, having said that, interesting because it's a white enamel dial with printed kind of uh, indices, uh, numerals. Yeah, numerals. This is 1815 Arabic numerals. Uh, oh, was it the 1815? Or was it Saxonia? I can't remember. What kind, of, what kind of numeral are the Arabic numerals? Arabic. Okay, then it's 1815. Um, but I feel like when you do the enameling, maybe you could have enameled the numerals onto it instead of printing it on. That's, that's what my point is, you know, because you've got this. They get all blurry. If you do, if you've seen yeah, enamel, then, um, then you can go down the whole, you know, it's a unique piece kind of thing. <laughs> no, it, you want it to be sharp. This is the longer we're talking about. Well, then it's just like, I feel it's not enough. You know, just to have a white it's not enamel enough? dial. Okay, then, you know what? I understand there's, the there's like a line of, of collectors wanting to get it after you, you know? There's, well, <laughs> okay, fine. I'm just seeing at the show, like the moment they realize you're hesitating, they're like, okay, you, you're not going to buy it next. You, you. <laughs> well, I couldn't get off. <laughs> I, I think the star of the show is the 1815 Kono, split second, because it's so wearable as well. You know, it's actually beautiful to wear, beautiful to look at, great function, pushes feel great. There's just not a lot to complain about with that watch, apart from the price. A split-second chronograph is fun to play with, but on that note, what does it cost? It costs over one million RMB, so I don't know what that is in US. It's anything, a million of anything except Turkish <laughs> lira is going to be a yeah. lot. Yeah, and then another piece I saw was the okay. uh, VC. Uh, Vacheron Constantin? Yeah, VC oversees perpetual calendar with uh, skeletonization. In I think yellow gold. Oh, that could be nice. Was it legible? Uh, well, you know, it's not that legible. <laughs> Who cares, uh -huh. man? Who cares? I mean, I do. It, I I will not wear a watch that I can't read. If, I won't if you do want it. legibility, then you don't open work the movement. Like you just keep it nice and clean. Black but what something. if you can open work the movement and have it legible? What an achievement! Okay. Yes. Okay. That's but what I'm saying. Also that. I've There's seen a both that watch as well is how thin it is. And the strap has that quick strap movement uh, kind of change, which makes it very, very Why attractive. would you ever take off the bracelet? Well, if you can put it on a, some kind of strap, not that I would, but it gives you that option. But the main part is how thin that piece is. It's not Audemars um, Piguet RD2 thin, I think, but it's... It's pretty thin. It's pretty it's, thin, it's yeah. Th it's so thin that you're like, wow, for an automatic perpetual calendar, yeah, that's pretty yeah, thin. Yeah, yeah, you look at it and you think, and, and, and the finishing is great. Like, it looks beautiful from the back, from the front. Very, very beautiful. 
And that's what Vacheron does very well. They make a great finished watch. Um, how much is that one? Do you remember? Nope. 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 <laughs> so I remember prices really well. Oh, See, actually, that's the no, thing, like, I do remember. I think, do you remember? Yeah, I think that, that was also close to a million RMB. Or, I mean, 900,000 uh, 900, or close to a million. That again. sounds about right. Yeah, that, that's, that's how much it was. That just sounds big. Anything a million just sounds crazy. Well, I think it seems to be almost a ballpark figure for some of these top, top-end pieces now. Now, in China, when you mention a price, does that include tax or is it tax on top of that? No, like no, 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 that includes it. That includes it. That includes yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in America, we don't have to do that. You can mention the price, and then obviously it's more, but they're like allowed to not mention yeah, the tax. Yeah, and then I kind of figured so that out. Like, why, why, why do you have to get me to do some math in my head? We like, you remember the persuasion thing? We like to BS our consumers. <laughs> but here's what I never get. The Swiss, as much as possible, never mention price, right? So yeah. were there prices listed in the windows? No prices listed in the windows. Right. So same as SIH, but in, in stores in Switzerland, by law... You like just walking on the street, oh. there needs to be a price labeled on everything. Oh, okay. So they hate displaying prices, even though in their country <laughs> it's the law to show prices. That's such an irony to me. <laughs> Anyways, there was um, a, okay. another piece, but I actually saw it uh -huh. in Hong Kong. But I think you've probably seen it. I don't think it's a novelty, but it's that Piaget super thin concept watch. You know, the one that is like thinner than a credit card. The 900p. Or the no, even thinner. It's it's like the thinner than a coin or something, you know. It's the ultimate. It's like what is it like like point nine millimeters or some crazy thing? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, point nine. Like, no, it's not point nine millimeters. <laughs> <laughs> some part of it is. It's it, but it's like a case and a crystal. There's not even yeah, a, like the, the dial like, is the case. You, you obviously have to realize that, that most cases the strap is going to be thinner than the watch, right? So they actually use this kind of. <laughs> Um, textile, like super thin straps, very thin, so uh, strap, which kind of feels a bit like silk. It it looks really bad when the watch strap is thicker than the case. It's the dumbest look ever. <laughs> it really looks bad. But that that watch, from a technical point of view, is amazing. However, we wear Pierre, it. Usually knows like, how to technically impress. You, you know how I don't know. Sometimes you're very conscious about hitting your watch on the door, right? Forget that. If you have this watch on, you are constantly walking with your hand over your wrist. It's well, that's so why Piaget is very happy because they get to make a lot of, you know, after sales repairs. It's great. It's great for business. <laughs> I don't know how many watches they can produce, though. I think it's only five and pretty much all of those are going to be unique pieces. That was, I remember the price of that. I think that was 300,000 or 350,000 US. Yeah, that sounds about right. And you want to know what, what I like about that? It was when someone says, like, why is the cost so much? You're like, look how crazy thin it is because... No one can do that. Do you have any idea how, how hard it is to get those tolerances? Like, there's a whole story there. Like, so many of the watches that price point, someone's like, okay, that's so great. Why does it cost that? And you're like, um, like, how often do you guys find yourselves at the Shanghai Watch King, even though you all know so much about watches, unable to explain the price point? Yeah, yeah, all the time. All the time. But yeah, I, like, you're just like, I don't know. I don't know why. But that's because I feel, I personally feel the price isn't made, the price isn't related to the manufacturer manufacturing price of the watch. I think most of the price is actually placed in the brand, which is very, very great. You know, how much is this brand worth? Because it's very subjective. You know, obviously, you're not going to pay that much for this watch or said watch, but someone, someone will. I mean, but should they? That's the thing. Like if, and this is maybe where we scare the brands the most, but if someone like a Daniel and Ariel gets their way, no one would be spending, quote, too much on a watch 
maybe that threatens them more than we understand. The thing is, though, we wouldn't go for the same watches, though, would we? Because we're very different people still. Yeah, we understand yeah, but, watches. But, but, but my point is, you wouldn't spend like $30,000 on a dive watch and steel where I was only spend eight on the same exact thing. Like we have different tastes, but we can agree on in like what a $3,000 or $10,000 or $100,000 watch should have inside yeah, of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then you go into like situations of how, do you, do you, how much value do you put on rarity? How much do you put on, you know, on exclusivity? Probably the same as you. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. And as you, I mean, look, as you know, rarity is 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 quite arbitrary. You know what I mean? Um, there's the actual rarity or is the perceived rarity. Like, you know, there's a lot of watches aren't thought of as being rare that are actually quite rare. But that someone saying something is rare, does that make it more rare? If anything, it makes it less rare because a bunch of people are talking about it. Maybe, yeah. I believe that Nautilus isn't that rare, but everybody thinks it is. <laughs> okay, so are you looking forward to going to the next watches and wonders Shanghai? Will you make the trip down to Hainan? Um, tell us what's sort of next for watches and wonders in China, and what's next for uh, Shanghai Watch Gang. Um, I will not make the trip to Hainan if it's basically the same thing, and I wouldn't do it by myself either if I was. So I want to go as a group. So this group thing is, this group therapy thing is very much needed for me. <laughs> I hope to see, and I think it will happen again next year. So I really look forward to um, any improvements, uh, which hopefully this whole COVID thing uh, will be more manageable. And therefore, maybe... Yeah, wouldn't it be great if Rishma could engineer just, just the end of COVID? Could they do that, <laughs> Rishma? Could you, put, could you put your mind to that, please? Thank you. Yeah, Baban is in, from LVMH has invested a lot in that kind of program, hasn't he? Um, I don't know. I heard something about hand sanitizer um, from LVMH, but I don't know. Okay. Maybe he has. I, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. Jokes aside, I I really want to see the development of a of a of a kind of a watch exhibition within um, Shanghai. I think Shanghai is the right place. I also would like it very tough. Having said it, it wasn't just Richemont. For me, I want to see stuff that I haven't seen before. Even when I meet other collectors, it's either I want to see a watch I haven't seen before, I want to hear a story I haven't seen, I heard before. So those are kind of very important for me. I think independent brands, as little as they are, always provide that. You know, they give you something you uh, have never seen before. Uh, and secondly, more often than not, you're engaging directly with the guy that made it. So that's always quite special for me. And your show was basically the closest thing to that. I mean, that's a lovely idea. People want that everywhere. What I think is interesting is, you know, when, when you hear you speak about this, it almost sounds as though like a bunch of other cities get to have all this access and things like that. And, you know, how you feel bad that like it hasn't hit your neighborhood yet. The reality is that most places don't have any of these things. And you're saying that Shanghai should have it because of the consumer base there. Mm. The reality is that what you're asking for is available almost nowhere, if anywhere. Yeah. And so yeah, you're right. yeah. if the watch industry were able to do some of these things, more places, it sounds like there'd be more watch sales going on. Yeah, because... You bring the attention of watches to a whole population. Just forget everywhere else in China. Let's say Shanghai. Shanghai has 30 to 40 million people, right? I think there's enough people that can buy watches here. 
<laughs> I'd like to think so. Oh yeah, I mean, you could have a brand just sell in that one city and be totally fine if they were doing their, you know, marketing correctly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I do. You do. When you put it that way, yeah, maybe it is selfish of me to to ask for that. But if you don't ask, you don't get right. And um, it's something that, yeah, you're right. We're passionate about, and we try and do our own watch watch exhibitions within Shanghai. You'll um, have to do it. So you asking for it is just an invitation for me to say no one but you and your colleagues could do it. I've been to your event there. You know how to do it. You need to have more brands and you need to sort of open it up to more, you know, lower end stuff as yeah. well. But you could do it. I don't know if you have the stomach for it. Being an event organizer, as you now know, is a pain in the ass. I feel, I, I put this to you the other day when I was talking to you. I felt like you would understand. When you become an Ariel Adams within the watch industry, do you have a sense of responsibility? Uh, and I, I knew the answer to it, but I just wanted to hear your version because I certainly feel it. You know, there's a lot of collectors, a lot of people that use me as a mouthpiece to speak to the watch industry, to vent their frustrations. You've got to understand a lot of the Chinese here, they don't speak English. So more often than not, mm. I am speaking on behalf of them, for them, right? So... I feel a sense of responsibility within the watch collector community. Also from a business opportunity kind of viewpoint, I think that... What are the common complaints? I'm just curious. Well, you know, just if a watch is broken, what do I deal with it? How do I, who do I speak to? Um, okay, the typical stuff. Yeah, that's hard. That, you know, but, that's a, I wish there was better answers to that everywhere. <laughs> I really do. It'll be stuff like, you know, can you talk to this person about the price, you know, or... Can you, uh, I have, you know, I can't actually speak French or English and my watch is broken. Yeah. How long is it going to take? Can you ask him? Can you write the email for me? All this kind of stuff. You know, I have people that actually, well, now it's got to the point where people can actually speak English and can write an email themselves, but they don't want to because they want me to do it because they feel I have an extra relationship with some brands. And I, I hope you're paying out, for you this, know, like some type of hourly rate. Well, I don't like making money off my friends. So you're like the you're like the watch doctor. Well, in China, if you know anything, you know relationships are very important, and more often than not, the people in the group are probably better to not make this as at the end of the day, what is chump change for this small service. I'd rather keep them on a good side and you know keep them friendly with me because they can offer a lot more than that. I mean, having said right. that, so it's, a, it's know, part of the so they do they scratch your back. You, so that's it's basically you know part of a. Uh, an elaborate and very effective sort of social and networking type yeah, of relationship. The, the Shanghai, you, you mentioned it about people going to store. I mean, I think a lot of listeners will probably identify going to a luxury watch store and basically not giving the desired attention from the sales or getting a good experience from the sales. But if you're part of Shanghai Watch Gang and you go to a store and they know you're from Shanghai Watch Gang, you get treated differently. So already that's... Yeah, like a pin? Is there a badge? Is there sort of a neck tattoo? <laughs> well, there's no tattoo yet. Yeah, we're working on it. But uh, this is the kind of... But that, that, that kind of experience only happens because maybe a, a whole bunch of the collectors in it are VIPs of that brand. So it's leveraged off that. But it's for the better of the watch community, obviously. 
I, look, I want there to be a version of what you have in LA. Like, like you're a little bit different than me. You're more comfortable sort of curating a community directly. I, I do it a little bit in a more detached sense as a voice. And I try to give, you know, I, we have different values in it. But like what you're talking about in Shanghai doesn't even exist in the Western part of the United States. There's some disjointed groups and things like that. But I think the biggest compliment I would give to your group is its size across different countries. Yes, there's a commonality of, you know, sort of mostly Chinese background, but it doesn't matter. Other than that, all of you are very diverse in a lot of ways, but that you've been able to have enough in common over such a wide territory is very, very impressive. I mean, we can't even agree on one person to lead a group in Los Angeles, let alone California or, you know, the United States. So it's, I think, very, very impressive. Of course, you don't represent all of the tastes, you know, in China, but you represent such a significant part of the enthusiast buying community. That's, that's no small achievement, but I think it just goes to show how much more of that is needed in other parts of the world. Well, there's only one of me and I'm based in Shanghai, so I can't fly everywhere. But what I have noticed is you have that... To, you have to have apprentices, Daniel. No, that, that, that's exactly what I was going on to. Like, what I found is people... You act as a role model, right? And people might look up to you. And that's a very embarrassing thing for me to say, but, you know, that might be the only way to say it. And you empower people. You empower people to make that bold move when they wouldn't normally do so. It's almost, I think that's kind of like what a leader is, right? And you need strong leaders of a group to set the tone of what a group is, um, how it's going to behave, how we are all going to respect each other despite what your buying power is. And then people see that, they want to aspire to be like that, and they know that it's within their grasp. Then you will empower other people to infect other people about this beautiful hobby that we all have. And I think that's what happens um, across Asia is that people already have their own gatherings um, because of the Shanghai Watch Group facilitated that. And they might have their own watch group, which is totally fine, by the way. You can totally have your own watch group, not be a part of Shanghai Watch Group. That's It's not something like I want to turn into like a red bar or anything. Um, I think it's far more powerful like that to actually empower people to actually go and do stuff that they wouldn't usually do, all for that hobby of yours. That's That's been a great um, a great episode. Thank you so much for joining me, Daniel, on this episode of Superlative. Before we end, tell everyone where they can find more of what Shanghai Watching does, how they can follow you, where they can check you out on social media. Just tell people what they should know. Well, we're most active on Instagram. So um, you can find us on Instagram and reach out to me. Um, most of the time, I will reply to everybody. Uh, I also set up a podcast called The Waiting List Podcast, which is with a group of other watch collectors uh, based around the world where we interview other collectors and we talk about their stories. Um, so you can find us on there. Uh, I think the Instagram is The Waiting List Podcast and the same name for the podcast on Apple and Spotify mainly. Yeah. So those are the two real channels that you can find us. Um, the other way is through WeChat. Like if somebody recommends you through WeChat, because we do, we are kind of, we like to know who comes in. We don't really like brand people coming in, no marketing people, <laughs> no PR people, and no, none of those dealers that pretend they're collector types either. Yeah, you, you guys. So can if do you one. can impress Daniel enough, he will let you into their WeChat group. Maybe that would be a good way. Actually, one thing we want to do, we discussed it as a group, is after everything is. Uh, 
over with COVID and things hopefully get back to normal and travel is normal. We want to just go to Switzerland as a whole bunch of us from different countries, you know. So you might be in Singapore or Thailand or even Europe, Canada or US. We all meet. Like how up. many? Mm, I don't put a number on it. Um, I would like to test it out with the people I trust. We're the talking most. twenty or two hundred. I mean, that's a big. Nah, no, I'm not doing two hundred. Something like intimate, because I think intimacy is kind of important. Okay. Um, maybe something like ten, fifteen, and then go down to Switzerland and do a whole tour, like a watch tour. Go to the manufacturers, eat the great. Well, I wouldn't say food's ever great, but in Switzerland, but you know, just have a good time with your buddies, you know, drink, just have fun. And we'd love to have you there. <laughs> um, I, look, how could I miss that? How could I miss that? Um, we'll probably have to do like 18 more episodes just as a recap of what happens during that trip, right? <laughs> I don't think, be too I much don't think material. all of it could be published. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. not. Um, and avoid the fondue. It'll hurt your stomach. Oh, that's the <laughs> first thing I'm going to go to, man. <laughs> this will be the only time you do it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. This has been a great episode of Superlative. Thank you, Daniel and the Shanghai Watch Group. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?